Is it a sin? Is it a crime? Loving you dear like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty. Guilty of loving you. Well, hello there, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Criminal Broads, a true crime and history podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law. Today's subject is uh, (laughs) a bit of a stretch, but bear with me. We are doing a two-part series on Jack the Ripper. Heard of him? (laughs) Now listen, I know what you're thinking. Jack the Ripper is not a criminal broad. Jack the Ripper is not a crime-fighting broad. Have I lost my mind? Um, I don't think so. I don't think so. What I want to do with these next two episodes is explore the women of Jack the Ripper. And um, you you know if you've been listening to this podcast that I like to talk about famous crimes, but maybe like the, the, the less told stories surrounding them. And I thought we could do a bit of a two-part series focusing on women uh, involved in the Jack the Ripper case, or as this episode is going to cover, Women that some people think were involved in the Jack the Ripper case, but the rest of the world thinks definitely weren't involved. So, back in November, I started researching an article that was eventually published on longreads.com about this theory, Jill the Ripper. This theory that the Jack the Ripper murders, which we all know they're part of the true crime canon, were actually committed by a woman. I didn't take this theory particularly seriously, but I was interested in the fact that some people did, in the fact that it existed at all. Anyway, since writing that article, I have discovered so much more about the Jill the Ripper theory that I thought it would be worth doing a podcast episode on it too. There is so much more out there than I ever realized. So many more people have talked about the theory and written about the theory than I realized. Uh, So that's what we're going to cover in this episode. Let me tell you a few other things before we get started. First of all, if you, it's beneficial to be familiar with the Jack the Ripper crimes before you listen to this episode. I imagine a lot of you are. If not, just read up on it really quickly. Um, We're not going to go into the details. I'm going to assume you kind of know the gist of it. The five canonical victims, um, the time and place. If you listened to the last episode, you will already be kind of familiar with the vibe in Victorian London um, and how people reacted to murders, which is with a lot of panic <laughs> and a lot of impassioned newspaper editorials, which isn't that different today. Second of all, like I said already, this is a wacky theory. This is an out there theory. You could even call this a conspiracy theory. So I'm we're doing kind of a meta a meta podcast. I'm going to be telling you about people who believe in the theory and why and why it's convincing or why it's not convincing. Um but you know, you can make up your own mind at the end if you think that Jack the Ripper could have possibly been a woman. And third of all, because the Ripper crimes are so complicated and there's so much information out there, but also so much conflicting information out there and so much that we don't know, I, of course, had to bring in an expert to help me in this episode. So you are occasionally going to be hearing from... I'm Jonathan Mangus. I am the creator and host of the podcast RipperCast, which is going on its 11th year we were are probably one of the first true crime podcasts 
um, and certainly the longest running podcast on a single criminal case. All right. So without further ado, let's go to perhaps the most famous year in true crime history, 1888. And you know where we're going. We're going to London. We're going to Whitechapel. We're going to the scene of some very horrible crimes. Let's get started. of 1888, in the east end of London, within a one-mile radius, there lurked a serial killer who murdered at least five women. He was not the world's first serial killer, but he emerged at a particularly serial killer-friendly time in history, when the average London resident was literate and could read the papers, and when the papers realized that nothing sold papers like murder. The papers, the readers, and the brutality of the crimes, and the fact that the killer was never caught, all conspired to give this murderer a mythical status, which has only increased to this day. It seemed pretty obvious to anyone who had the terrible misfortune of actually seeing these blood-drenched crime scenes that this was the work of a man. This person was leaving his victims' bodies in shocking disarray, as though he wanted to erase their femaleness. Their organs were taken, intestines were thrown over their shoulders, cultish markings were carved into cheeks. One of them was found without her heart. It was classic overkill, more violence than is necessary to end a life. And as any good true crime reader knows, overkill is something that male murderers do. But the reasons for suspecting a male murderer were more than just aesthetic ones. Every trembling eyewitness who thought that they maybe possibly spotted the Ripper with one of his victims was sure that the figure they'd just seen was a man. In the cases where the victims were seen shortly before their deaths, like in the case of Catherine Eddowes being uh, seen outside of Mitre Square, and in the case of Elizabeth Stride, they were seen in the company of men. Catherine Eddowes probably most directly um, in uh, in the fact that there was only a matter of minutes between her last being seen at the entrance to Church Passage by three eyewitnesses in the company of a man and the police constable discovering her body in the corner of Mitre Square. Um, In the case of Elizabeth Stride, she was seen with two or three different men in the hour before her death and then um, was actually seen to be thrown to the ground by a man uh, within a few minutes of her body being discovered in 
the passageway of Dutfield's Yard. So that, uh, oh, and, and, and there's a report that Annie Chapman was um, seen speaking to a man outside of 29 Hanbury Street. So that added to just the nature of the murder themselves, um, that the killer seemed to pose the victims with their skirts hiked up, um, the, the murderer targeted the genital areas of the victims um, in stabbing them. Um, that, of course, implies of what, from what we know of serial killer behavior that there was some kind of psychosexual component to the murders. Over the next hundred plus years, the myths of the murders grew and grew until the unthinkably sad reality of the crimes became subsumed under the creepy, ooky, spooky horror movie aesthetic of capital J, Jack, the capital R, Ripper. The Ripper's look, top hat, cape swirling behind him as he disappears into the fog, became a veritable industry. You can buy a Ripper costume, read a Ripper comic book, attend a Ripper cabaret. All this, and people are still debating who the Ripper actually was. Though most of the debate swirls around various male suspects, there's one rather odd theory out there that was birthed right after the first two murders and has hung on tenaciously ever since. The theory that Jack the Ripper was, perhaps, a Jill all along. The Jill theory sprang up surprisingly early in the investigation. After the first two canonical murders of Marianne Nichols, murdered Friday, August 31st, 1888, and Annie Chapman, murdered Saturday, September 8th, 1888, a local priest and philanthropist named Lord Sidney Godolphin Osborne wrote a letter to the Times in which he practically bellows that, quote, It is within the range of my belief that one or both of these Whitechapel murders may have been committed by female hands. There are details in both cases, he continues, which fit in well with language forever used where two of these unfortunates are in violent strife. There is far more jealousy, as is well known, between such women in regard to those with whom they cohabit than is the case with married people, where one may suspect the other of sin against the marriage vow. What Lord Sidney is saying here, in his convoluted fashion, is that he believes that sex workers were more jealous of each other's lovers than married people were of each other's affairs, and so perhaps both of these women were killed by a female rival. This theory, we should note, hinges on the long-held assumption that all of the Ripper's victims were sex workers, which is now under debate. Lord Sidney kept going, writing, there are, I have no doubt, plenty of women of this class known for their violent temper with physical power to commit such a deed. As to the nature of their sex forbidding belief that they could so act, how many of them are altogether unsexed, have no one element in character with female feeling? 
Now, other newspapers immediately started ridiculing Lord Sidney Osborne's wacky theorizing. But he wasn't the only one who felt that there might be something to this woman theory. As the weeks went on and London kept their eyes peeled for another Ripper murder, a small but vocal minority continued to suggest to the papers that the murderer could have been female. On October 2nd, after the double event, but before the murder of Mary Kelly, the Star published a list of theories that they had received from their readers. And amongst those that the killer was a religious fanatic or a social reformer or suffering from syphilis was this suggestion that the perpetrator of the murders may be a woman. And they referred, the writer referred to it as a Kate Webster type who has gained anatomical knowledge while learning midwifery. And uh, Kate Webster was a petty criminal who obtained work as a maid for Julia Thomas in London whom she eventually killed and dismembered and disposed of the pieces of Julia Thomas's body around London and in the Thames. And um, she was executed for the murder in 1879, the only woman ever hanged at Wandsworth Prison. On Friday, November 9th, the last and most gruesome Ripper murder occurred, the murder of Mary Kelly. And with this murder came a small but fascinating piece of evidence that led to what we might call the first serious consideration of the Jill theory. The first people to see Mary Kelly's body, her landlord and his assistant, thought they were looking at the work of the devil. The first policeman to see her body staggered back and cried out for his partner not to look. His partner ignored him and looked anyway. What he saw was a woman who had been skinned and cut to pieces and carved up into what amounted to piles of human flesh. When my eyes had become accustomed to the dim light, I saw a sight which I shall never forget to my dying day, wrote this policeman in his memoirs. The whole horror of that room will only be known to those of us whose duty it was to enter it. The full details are unprintable. There was little left of her, not much more than a skeleton. Her face was terribly scarred and mutilated. All of this was horrifying enough, but the mental picture of that sight, which remains most vividly with me, is the poor woman's eyes. They were wide open and seemed to be staring straight at me with a look of terror. After the initial shock had worn off to the extent that it ever would, The police started piecing together a timeline and soon found that there were inconsistencies as to when exactly Mary Kelly had died. The coroner said that she died in the early hours of the morning, but a woman named Caroline Maxwell swore that that was impossible because she'd seen Mary Kelly a good five hours after she was supposed to have been killed. She'd recognized Mary's outfit and even spoken to her. If Mary Kelly had been dead... Who in the world had she spoken to? One writer, who very well could have been making things up, claimed that this weird little discrepancy caught the ear of Frederick George Aberline, a chief inspector for the London Metropolitan Police, who suggested to a colleague, do you think it could be a case not of Jack the Ripper, but Jill the Ripper? We don't know exactly what Aberline theorized and to whom, but we do know that there were women's clothes burned in the fireplace of Mary Kelly's room. 
What if Jill had burned her own blood-soaked clothes and changed into Mary's clean clothes as a means of disguise? What if Caroline Maxwell had unwittingly talked to the actual murderer that morning, dressed up as the victim? It was a slim thread of a theory, and a weird one, but it would have a long half-life. Back in London, the Jill theorizing continued, even if most people were still keeping their eyes peeled for a jack. About a year after the last murder, a grouchy gynecologist named Dr. Lawson Tate spotted some mention of the Jill theory in an evening paper called the Pall Mall Gazette and instantly chimed in with his own opinion, or his own opinions, rather, of which he had plenty. In his interview with the Gazette, he declared that the Ripper absolutely must have worked in a London slaughterhouse. Quote, the crimes are the work of a lunatic. The absolute motivelessness of the whole business shows this, he boomed. The operator must have been a person accustomed to use a sharp knife upon meat. The work was done by no surgeon. A surgeon cuts in a niggling kind of way. The murderer in these cases has worked in a free, slashing manner. The cuts are made in a fashion peculiar to the London butcher. They would have been made quite differently if the operator had hailed from Dublin or Edinburgh. The Ripper's lunacy, said Lawson, came from epilepsy. The idea that people with epilepsy could be prone to violent outbursts was quite popular for decades, though totally unsupported by science. Four years after the Ripper murders, when Andrew and Abby Borden were killed in Massachusetts, some people would wonder if Lizzie Borden had done it in two epileptic fits spaced 90 minutes apart. Lawson insisted that female epileptics suffered from more regular fits than males do, and so the epileptic Ripper had to be a woman. And then he summed up his theory. Quote, Nothing is more likely than that Jack the Ripper is some big strong woman engaged at a slaughterhouse in cleaning up, now and then actually cutting up meat, he roared. According to him, a woman would have escaped the notice of police, a woman would have been able to roll up her bloody skirt and drape herself in her shawl to escape detection, and, this is important, a woman would have known to wash out her bloody clothes in cold water, whereas a man might wash them out in hot water, accidentally setting the stains. A woman is always at the washing tub, Lawson thundered in conclusion. Unlike later Jill advocates, Lawson's argument has one thing going for it. It lines up with what we do know today about female serial killers, not the epilepsy part, not the slaughterhouse part, but we know that, often, there's a practicality to their violence. They're good at being serial killers. They know how to clean up after themselves and how to avoid detection. When the cops show up, they play dumb, make excuses. You'll never find them standing in the street, ranting and raving and covered in blood. Lawson's idea of Jill the Ripper is a woman who is strong and efficient, with a method to her horrible madness. She slaughters cows, she slaughters women, she rolls up her bloody skirt, she heads straight for the washing tub and the cold water. She's good at her job. Yeah.
1939, a quirky, passionate designer of theater sets named William Stewart published a book called Jack the Ripper, in which he plays coy, referring to the Ripper as he and him, until the very last chapter, titled A Startling Theory. Stewart believed that four questions would lead us to the Ripper, or at least to the type of person who might be a Ripper. And these questions were, one, what sort of person could be out at night without exciting the suspicion of the household or neighbors who were keyed up with suspicion on account of the mysterious crimes? Two, what sort of person, heavily bloodstained, could pass through the streets without exciting suspicion? Three, what sort of person could have the elementary anatomical knowledge which was evidenced by the mutilations and the skill to perform them in such a way as to make some think a doctor was responsible? And four, what sort of murderer could have risked being found by the dead body and yet have a complete and perfect alibi? My answer to all these questions is, Stewart declares, a woman who was or had been a midwife. The midwife theory is surprisingly convincing, at least initially. You see, depending on which report you read, the Ripper may have had to have some basic anatomical knowledge in order to perform these crimes. As the police surgeon who examined the body of Catherine Eddowes wrote in his postmortem report, I believe the perpetrator of the act must have had considerable knowledge of the position of the organs in the abdominal cavity and the way of removing them. The midwife theory solves this problem nicely. As Stewart puts it, these mutilations could have been performed only by a hand unpracticed in surgery, but at the same time possessing a knowledgeable and manipulative dexterity, which the calling of a midwife calls for. Midwifery would also be the perfect alibi for Jill. If anyone caught her with blood on her clothes, well, that was just part of her job. Gosh, when wasn't she covered in blood, you know? If anyone caught her by the body, she could claim she was just trying to help the poor woman, see if she needed anything. Stewart also notes that the skirts and cloaks of the Victorian era could have been turned inside out, making it possible for Jill to murder someone, flip her clothes around, and disappear into the crowd looking as fresh as a homicidal daisy. If you take uh, the nature of the killings themselves and the sexual component like i had mentioned earlier out of the equation um in the psych and psychoanalyzing the killer um it is plausible that you know a woman um as a midwife or uh, other people suggested a, a, a horse slaughterer's uh, attendant would get a be would, you know, would not take, there wouldn't be a second glance at her walking down the streets of the East End of London at that hour of the morning covered in blood. Um, we don't, you know, now we look at the crimes and, and aren't quite sure how covered in blood the murderer might have even been, given the nature of how he's cut their throats um, with their heads facing the wall and everything. He might have been doing some of these things purposefully to shield himself from getting too much blood on him. But back in 1888, you know, they, they were imagining, the public was imagining someone running around the streets in White, at Whitechapel covered in blood. Um, 
Um, so it's not it's not too far of a stretch to think that a midwife or someone posing as a midwife could get away from the crime scene with blood on her and have that alibi. But let's talk motive. Why is Jill murdering in the first place? Stewart's theory is that this, quote, mad midwife went insane because of betrayal. Jill would have been accustomed to performing secret illegal abortions, but perhaps one of her clients had ratted her out to police. Apparently, this sort of betrayal wasn't uncommon in 1888, especially if a woman was trying to get out of trouble for having had an abortion in the first place. Tossed into prison, Jill would, quote, consider herself a martyr. Brooding over what she would consider to be an act of treachery, she would eventually convince herself that she had every justification for the murder of such women as those who had denounced her. In other words, she would decide not only to kill the woman who betrayed her, but all the women like the one who had betrayed her. Up until this point, Stuart is being fairly modest. He's talking about what type of woman, in general, could be the Ripper. But then he names names. Mary Percy was a depressed alcoholic who had a lot of trouble with men, especially with a man named Frank Samuel Hogg, who was married and had a child. Mary didn't like this about Frank. She wanted him for herself. And so, on October 24, 1890, two years after Mary Kelly's murder, she invited Frank's wife, Phoebe, to come over to her place to have a nice cup of tea. <laughs> Bring the child, too. Why not? Fast forward to that evening, when Phoebe's body was found on a road with her head wrapped in a sweater. That head had been bashed in, and her throat had been slashed so viciously that her head was almost completely cut off. A mile away, a blood-stained baby carriage contained the suffocated body of her child. Police found blood and broken windows in Mary's kitchen, along with a bloody poker and a carving knife, which Mary said she'd been using to kill mice. They also found her wearing Phoebe's wedding ring. Two months later, she was hung. William Stewart liked the looks of Mary Percy for his Jill. It seems that William Stewart's idea that Percy could have been Jill the Ripper is because Mary Percy had wheeled the bodies away from the crime scene in a perambulator, a baby carriage. And William Stewart happened to believe that the bodies of the Ripper victims had been dumped at the crime scenes rather than killed uh, where they were found. And so... That's what made him think of Mary Percy as being a possible suspect for the Ripper. Um, the, the idea that maybe they were wheeled there. Mary Percy was also kind of creepy and mysterious in her last days, which made her look very Ripper-esque, at least to some. Not long before her death, she placed an ad in the paper that read, M-E-C-P, last wish of M-E-W, have not betrayed. M-E-W. To conspiracy theorists, this weird note can be twisted to make her look extra guilty or even look like someone who's corresponding with the Ripper. And of course, her violent tendencies don't help. But the Mary Percy is Jill the Ripper theory falls apart when we consider the nature of her murders versus the nature of the Ripper murders. 
Just because two crimes are equally bloody doesn't mean they're committed by the same sort of psychopath. I really don't take the Mary Percy is Jill the Ripper theory very seriously. Um, because Mary Percy's um, murders were driven by jealousy and um, the murders of um, her lover's wife and an infant daughter were the only murders that Mary Percy was known to have committed. Um, she lived a fair uh, amount of distance away from the East End. So um, I really don't believe that Mary Percy you know, could have been Jill the Ripper. About 70 years after William Stewart wrote about Mary Percy and Mad Midwives, another impassioned guy came along to tackle the Jill theory. His name was John Morris. He was a legal consultant specializing in immigration. And in 2012, he and his father published a book called Jack the Ripper, The Hand of a Woman. Unlike Stewart, Morris gives away his big twist in the title and insists early on in the book that he and his father have solved the case for real and that, quote, over 120 years of traditional thinking has to be set aside. Now, this book is based on another book, though, <laughs> that has been proven to be totally false. In 2005, a man named Tony Williams published a book called Uncle Jack, in which he claimed that his ancestor, Dr. John Williams, was Jack the Ripper. Tony's theory, stay with me, was that Dr. Williams' wife, Lizzie, was infertile, and so the good doctor took to the streets of Whitechapel, ripping out uteri wherever he could find them, in order to study them back at his laboratory and hopefully cure his wife's sterility. Also, he was having an affair with Mary Kelly, the final Ripper victim. There is not a shred of evidence to support this, and yet, in the hand of a woman, Morris leaps off the Uncle Jack theory and makes it his own. His pick for the Ripper? Not Dr. John Williams, but Lizzie, his infertile wife. Taking the unproven theory about Dr. Williams' affair with Mary Kelly as one of his starting points, Morris paints a picture of a rich wife driven mad with insecurity about her own uterus and jealousy over her rival's fertile womb. He muses that Lizzie may have learned surgery at her husband's side. Quote, He might have shown her how to operate, isolate, and remove a diseased organ swiftly, though there is no actual evidence that he did. He rhapsodizes about her feelings of self-loathing that may have developed. Quote, she may have harbored emotions of hatred or even disgust toward her own body. Lizzie's uterus, this most significant of all female organs, was useless to her. And he declares that Lizzie would have definitely resented the women who may have come to her husband for abortions. Quote, she would have seen it as grossly unjust that these gin-soaked alcoholics were fertile and produced babies by the score. Now, 
According to this book, Lizzie's main goal was to kill Mary Kelly, her husband's mistress, but first she had to practice killing. So, in the grand tradition of dedicated workaholics like Steve Jobs and Michael Jordan, she applied herself, learned from her mistakes, and perfected her craft. When killing Mary Ann Nichols, quote, she drew out the knife, pressed it against her victim's neck. She cut her victim's throat a second time just to be sure that she could do it. When following up on Annie Chapman, quote, this was to be her final rehearsal, and now she was determined to kill a woman and tear her uterus from her dead body. She then killed Elizabeth Stride after asking Stride where she could find Mary Kelly. She mistakenly killed Catherine Eddowes because Eddowes sometimes went by the name Mary Kelly. This at least is true. And finally, she found her husband's succulent mistress and wreaked havoc on her body. Quote, We think that Lizzie Williams hacked off her victim's breasts, not only because she believed her husband frequently reveled in fondling them, but because those breasts might one day have suckled his baby. In other words, history's most dreadful and infamous serial killer was created by that most stereotypically feminine of emotions, jealousy. This particular Jill theory is totally baseless, not just because it's painfully implausible, what with all the she may have learned surgery at her husband's side, she may have been jealous, she may have felt this way, she may have felt that way, writing, but because it's based off evidence that has been proven to be false. Still, as so often happens with the internet, poor Lizzie Williams has entered into a sort of weird afterlife in connection with the case. When you Google Jill the Ripper, you usually either get an image search result of Mary Percy or Lizzie Williams. But Lizzie Williams has also kind of taken on a life of her own as a Mary Kelly stand-in, where the Jack the Ripper Museum in on Cable Street in London, uses a picture of Lizzie Williams as Mary Kelly from life. And yes, and um, we're constantly seeing people posting on the message boards and on Facebook, posting a picture of Lizzie Williams, asking if this is really a picture of Mary Kelly. So somehow along the line, photographs of Lizzie Williams are being called photographs of Mary Kelly um, when, yeah, we, we're always having to say pe to people, no, that's Lizzie Williams, not Mary Kelly. And Lizzie Williams was not Jack the Rivers. <laughs> other theories have sprung up. Jill the Ripper was a super religious nurse who discovered that her husband had slept with a sex worker and so she wanted her vengeance. Or Jill the Ripper was a vengeful lesbian lover of Mary Kelly's. Or Jill the Ripper was a man but who disguised himself as a woman in order to escape detection. Or Jill the Ripper was someone who never existed at all. Edwin Woodhall. He 
named a woman named Olga Shirkov. Um, and this, this is in 1937, so this even predates William Stewart's uh, Mary Percy theory. Um, but he, yeah, uh, Edwin Woodhall um, said that Olga uh, Shirkov, who was a Russian woman, um, Olga's story is that um, her sister Vera was lured into prostitution by Mary Kelly, um, became pregnant and died in a botched abortion. And so Olga went on a killing spree out of revenge for her sister's death. Um, there's no record whatsoever of Olga ever existing. So it's complete fiction. But it is one of the earliest examples of a Jill the Ripper theory, um, you know, in print by a, a Ripper theorist. And in 2006, an Australian scientist swabbed a tiny bit of DNA from the back of stamps on a letter that may or may not have been sent by the Ripper and concluded that the results, which he admitted were inconclusive and not forensically reliable, showed that the Ripper, if the Ripper had actually written the letter, could maybe be a woman. <laughs> like many other things about the Ripper case, it's plausible from one angle, impossible from the next, and really depends on which sources you are consulting and who you've decided to trust and how imaginative you are feeling on that day in particular. Now, most people who study the Ripper murders do not think that the murderer was a woman. Jack the Ripper being a woman is one of the most crackpot theories, if not the most crackpot theory about Jack the Ripper writes one of them in a forum on the Ripper site casebook.org. There are all sorts of reasons for this that we've already touched on. The eyewitness accounts, the fact that the murders match up better with what we know about male serial killers rather than female serial killers. But there's also the fact that it's hard to take some of these Jill theories seriously because it's hard to trust the incentive behind them. If you insist that you and you alone have finally discovered who Jack the Ripper was, chances are you're out to make some money or at least get a lot of press, and people are suspicious of that. Jack the Ripper has become a myth more so than um, a real murder case in a way. You know, there, there's, almost, there's almost two Jack the Rippers. There's the Jack the Ripper of reality that is in the Whitechapel murder series that is researched by Ripperologists. And then there's the popular culture spin on Jack the Ripper as a top hat wearing, Gladstone bag carrying, you know, guy walking through the shrouded streets of London. And, and you can make money on, um, you know, people will, bu <clears throat> will buy anything. Um, and so I think that there's authors out there who think that if they come up with a theory that is so outlandish, um, that someone's going to buy it. And, and, and I think that that's all it comes down to is, is basically people are wanting to, you know, make a quick buck and profit off of the mystery of the murders. And so, and, you know, helped along by tabloid newspapers in the UK who seem to print every single outlandish theory that comes along in front page banner headlines, Jack the Ripper case solved. 
you know, because it's an unsolved mystery and because there are so many records that have been destroyed and that are missing over the years, you can, you can just kind of plug in someone. If we don't know where Vincent Van Gogh was during the um, autumn of 1888, then he could have traveled from France to London. Um, you know, it, so it's like one of those things. There's this big question mark, a really big gaping hole in the case, and that is who was the killer. And so anyone could just basically take anyone, anyone alive in the late Victorian period and insert them into the, you know, put them in Jack the Ripper's shoes. But questionable motivation or no, the main problem with a lot of these Jill theories isn't that women don't murder or that women don't murder violently and bloodily. Of course they do. We know this today, and they knew this back in Victorian England. Back then, they were surrounded by sensational murderess cases, one of which we covered in the last episode. No, the problem is that many of these Jill theories try too hard to reach too broadly. They try to show that an entire type of woman could have done this type of crime, like that midwives have lots of reasons to go insane, or sex workers have lots of reasons to be violent, or women who don't have children are always right on the precipice of murdering women who do have them. It's like trying to prove that any young law student could have been a Ted Bundy, or any failed musician might just be the next Charles Manson, rather than treating these serial killings for what they are, anomalies. It's ridiculous, and that's why these theories fall apart when Lord Sidney Osborne insists that sex workers have violent, jealous altercations all the time that end with kidneys being ripped out, or Dr. Lawson Tate insists that all women know how to wash out bloodstains like a murderer would. Or when William Stewart makes one of his bizarrely general declarations, like, quote, Mutilation is the supreme expression of spitefulness, and spitefulness is a vice to which female criminals are addicts. Sometimes these theories seem to be unconsciously insisting that Jill the Rippers walk among us. They are our wives, our mothers, our friends. Jill could be any of us they seem to be saying, if we just look hard enough. All in all, the Jill the Ripper theory is more interesting for the fact that it exists at all, and for its longevity, than for its realism. Granted, if it is someday proven that Jack the Ripper was a woman, it will be one of the biggest twists in history. But until that day comes, we're left shuffling through the frustratingly inconclusive evidence, evidence that has convinced most of us that the Ripper, at the end of the day, was probably a Jack. There is one component of the Jill theory that's more compelling than everything else, though, and some of these theorists touch on it. It's the idea that if Jill the Ripper existed, no one would have seen her because no one would have been looking for her. No one ever suspects the woman, right? It's also the most frustrating and insubstantial argument, and it's awfully close to a logical fallacy, the appeal to ignorance, or the idea that your conclusion must be true because there is no evidence that it's false. In other words, Jack the Ripper must be a woman because we can't conclusively prove that she's not a woman. But 
It's intriguing because it allows Jill to exist without anyone ever realizing she was right there all along. Think about it. We know, these days, that serial killers do like to return to the scene of the crime, and sometimes they even try to get involved with the investigation. It's not so hard to imagine a woman with icy eyes standing among the bystanders, watching the police swarm around the bodies. Her bodies. Can't you see her standing there? A strong woman with an emotionless face who works a normal job during the day and goes roving around the city at night. A woman that no one will truly see because no one will ever truly look for her. No one will ever truly consider her dangerous. It's a chilling picture, right? But when you reach for it, your hands close on nothing but the fog of Whitechapel, and the Ripper has slipped away once again. That's all for today, folks. Thanks for listening. What do you think? It was totally Olga, right? That's what I think, too. All right. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to know everything you could ever want to know about the Jack the Ripper case and everything surrounding it, try uh, check out casebook.org and listen to The Rippercast, which you can find on any podcast platform. You can also follow them on Facebook and Twitter. And thanks so much to Jonathan for lending his expertise to this episode and being willing to consider this wacky Jill theory with me. Um, believe it or not, this is not the weirdest Jack the Ripper theory. I personally, my favorite bizarre Jack the Ripper theory is the theory that Lewis Carroll was Jack the Ripper. Yes, the author of Alice in Wonderland. Look that up if you don't know it. It involves, um, what are they called? Anagrams, where you, scram where you scramble words. Basically, someone, has, someone is arguing that if you unscramble, if you scramble some of Lewis Carroll's simple writing for children, it says things like, I am Jack the Ripper. We cooked the human flesh and ate it, and it was tough. Um, it's truly, truly one of the strangest true crime theories, true crime conspiracy theories out there. All right, this is part one of the Jack the Ripper, the Women of Jack the Ripper exploration that we're doing. And part two is going to be a lot more serious because we are going to look into the lives of the, the women whose names are forever linked to Jack the Ripper, but women who a lot of people don't actually know that much about. The victims of Jack the Ripper, the canonical five victims of Jack. So um, look forward to that in the next episode. Before I let you go, there's one thing I forgot to say in the intro. It is that some of you might be screaming at me right now and saying, but Tori, Jack the Ripper has already been found. New DNA evidence has declared that it was that Aaron guy. I forget his name off the top of my head. Um, 
To that I say, now I am no expert, I am no ripperologist, and I am no forensic scientist, nor have I ever even looked at a speck of DNA under a microscope. But from my understanding, that evidence is inconclusive at best. And in fact, a Forbes headline recently, a geneticist recently called it in a Forbes headline, unpublishable nonsense. So um, I don't, I think uh, if you follow the Jack the Ripper case at all, every couple of years, there's something new comes into the headlines saying Jack the Ripper has been found. Uh, just like the idea that, you know, the DNA from a Jack the Ripper letter was may- maybe belonged to a woman. These things always make the headlines and these things are always very dramatic, but we have to take them with a massive grain of Himalayan pink sea salt. And then before I let you go, um, I would like to thank my new patrons. These people have been gracious enough to give to my Patreon account, which is so incredibly helpful in making this podcast. Um, So thank you. I would like to thank Jeffra. I would like to thank Cheryl Cornwell. I'd like to thank Lee. And I would like to thank Constance. Thank you, uh, you four. I really, really appreciate it. For the rest of you, if you want to support the podcast, check out patreon.com slash criminal broads. There'll be a link in the show notes. Please rate and review on iTunes and tell your friends about it. And check out uh, Criminal Broads on Instagram, where I always post photos pertaining to the episode. I think that's all. I'll see you back here for episode 24. Until then, have a wonderful April. Bye-bye. Maybe I'm right. Maybe I'm wrong. Loving you, dear, like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty, guilty of loving you. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.